Welcome to HMG Podcast. This is your host, Hashem Garrett. Today I am reading a story from Why Forgive about Officer Stephen McDonald. When NYPD Officer Stephen McDonald entered Central Park on the afternoon of July 12th, 1986, he had no reason to expect anything out of the ordinary. True, there had been a recent string of bicycle thefts and other petty crimes in the area, and he and his partner, Sergeant Peter King, were on the lookout. But that was a routine, all in a day's work. Then they came across a cluster of suspicious-looking teens. When they recognized us as cops, they cut and ran. We chased after them, my partner going in one direction and I in another. I caught up with them about 30 yards away. As I did, I said to them, Fellas, I'm a police officer. I'd like to talk with you. Then I asked them what their names were and where they lived. Finally, I asked them, why are you in the park today? While questioning them, I noticed a bulge in the pant leg of the youngest boy. It looked like he might have a gun tucked into one of his socks. I bent down to examine it. As I did, I felt someone move over me. And as I looked up, the taller of the three, he turned out to be 15, was pointing a gun at my head. Before I knew what was happening, there was a deafening explosion. The muzzle flashed and a bullet struck me above my right eye. I remember the reddish-orange flame that jumped from the barrel, the smell of the gunpowder and the smoke. I fell backward and the boy shot me a second time, hitting me in the throat. Then as I lay on the ground, he stood over me and shot me a third time. I was in pain. I was numb. I knew I was dying and I didn't want to die. It was terrifying. My partner was yelling into his police radio, 1013 Central, 1013. And when I heard that code, I knew I was in a very bad way. Then I closed my eyes. Stephen doesn't remember what happened next, but when the first officers to respond re- arrived on the scene, they found Sergeant King sitting on the ground, covered in Stephen's blood, cradling him in his arms and rocking him back and forth. He was crying knowing that every wasted second could be fatal. The men heaved Stephen into the back of their car and rushed him to the nearest emergency room at Harlem's Metropolitan Hospital, 20 blocks away. Immediately, EMT nurses and doctors went to work. For the next 48 hours, he hung between life and death. At one point, Stephen's chief surgeon even told the police commissioner, he's not going to make it, call the family. Tell them to come say goodbye. But then he turned the corner. They did the impossible. They saved me, but my wounds were devastating. The bullet that struck my throat had hit my spine, and I couldn't move my arms or legs or breathe without a ventilator. In less than a second, I had gone from being an active police officer to an incapable crime victim. I was paralyzed from the neck down. When the surgeon came into my room to tell me this, my wife, Patty Ann, was there, and he told her I would need to be institutionalized. We had been married just eight months, and Patty Ann, who was 23 at the time, was three months pregnant. She collapsed to the floor, crying uncontrollably. I cried, too, though I was locked in my body and unable to move or to reach out to her. Stephen spent the next 18 months in the hospital, first in New York and then in Colorado. It was like learning to live all over again, this time completely dependent on other people. There were endless things to get used to, 
being fed, bathed, and helped to the bathroom. Then about six months after I was shot, Patty Ann gave birth to a baby boy. We named him Connor. To me, Connor's birth was like a message from God that I should live and live differently. And it was clear to me that I had to respond to that message. I prayed that I would be changed, that the person I was would be replaced by something new. That prayer was answered with a desire to forgive the young man who shot me. I wanted to free myself of all the negative, destructive emotions that his act of violence had unleashed in me. Anger, bitterness, hatred, and other feelings. I needed to free myself of those emotions so that I could love my wife and our child and those around us. Then shortly after Connor's birth, we held a press conference. People wanted to know what I was thinking and how I was doing. That's when Patty Ann told everyone that I had forgiven the young man who tried to kill me. Stephen and his assailant, whose name was Shavard Jones, could not have been more different. Stephen was white. Shavard was black. Stephen came from the middle-class suburbs of Long Island's Nassau County, Shavard, from housing Harlem Housing Project. Their brief encounter might have ended right there, but Stephen wouldn't let it. Knowing that his attacker had just altered the course of both of their lives, he felt an uncanny connection to him. Strangely, we became friends. It began with my writing to him. At first, he didn't answer my letters, but then he wrote back. Then one night, a year or two later, he called my home from prison and apologized to my wife, my son, and me. We accepted his apology, and I told him I hoped he and I could work together in the future. I hoped that one day we might travel around the country together, sharing how this act of violence had changed both our lives and how it had given us an understanding of what is most important in life. Eventually, the exchange fizzled out. Then, in late 1995, Shavad was released from prison. Three days later, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Others might feel Stephen's effort to reach out to his attacker were wasted, but he himself doesn't think so. I was a badge to that kid, a uniform representing the government. I was the system that let landlords charge rent for squalid apartments and broken down tenements. I was the city agency that fixed up poor neighborhoods and drove the residents out through gentrification, regardless of whether they were law abiding solid citizens or pushers and criminals. I was the Irish cop who showed up at a domestic dispute and left without doing anything because no law had been broken. To Shavar Jones, I was the enemy. He didn't see me as a person, as a man with loved ones, as a husband and father-to-be. He'd bought into all the stereotypes of his community. The police are racist. They'll turn violent. So arm yourself against them. And I couldn't blame him. Society, his family, the social agencies responsible for him, the people who made it impossible for his parents to be together had failed him way before he had met me in Central Park. When visiting Stephen in his Long Island home since meeting in 19, 1997, we have become close friends. I am often struck by the extent of his incapacitation. Life in a wheelchair is hard enough for an elderly person to accept, but to be plucked out of an active, fun-loving life in your prime is devastating. Add to that 
a tracheotomy to breathe through, and total dependence on a nurse and other caregivers, life can seem pretty confining at times. Stephen is matter-of-fact about this. There's nothing easy about being paralyzed. I have not been able to hold my wife in my arms for two decades. Connor is now a young man, and I've never been able to play catch with him. It's frustrating, difficult, ugly at times. So why did he forgive? Again, he himself says it best. I forgave Shavad because I believe the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine would have been to nurture revenge in my heart. Such an attitude would have extended my injury to my soul, hurting my wife, son, and others even more. It's bad enough that the physical effects are permanent, but at least I can choose to prevent spiritual injury. Again, I have my ups and downs. Some days when I am not feeling very well, I can get angry. I get depressed. There have been times when I even felt like killing myself, but I have come to realize that anger is a wasted emotion. Of course, I didn't forgive Shavad right away. It took time. Things have evolved over 14 years. I think about it almost every day, but I can say this. I've never regretted forgiving him. Patty Ann feels the same. It's been hard, very hard for me to really forgive the boy that shot Stephen. Why did he have to do it? I still want to know. Why couldn't my son grow up having the same experiences other kids have with their dads? We still struggle over that one. But I learned a long time. I learned long ago that in order for us to get along as a couple, I had to let go of my anger. Otherwise, Stephen and I wouldn't have been able to go on ourselves. Because when something like that festers inside of you, it just destroys you from the inside out. Today, Stephen is a sought-after speaker at schools in and around New York City, holding entire auditoriums captive as he retells his story and launches dialogue on the broader issues surrounding it. To him, the cycle of violence that plagues so many lives today, including young lives like that of Shavad, can be overcome only by breaking down the walls that separate people and make them afraid of each other. The best tools for this, he says, are love, respect, and forgiveness. Quoting Robert F. Kennedy, Stephen likes to point out that The victims of violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. But they are most important of all human beings whom other human beings have loved and needed. And somewhere in each address, he finds a way to refer to Martin Luther King, a man who gives him unending inspiration. When I was a very young kid, Dr. King came to my town in New York. My mother went to hear him speak. She was very impressed by what she heard. I hope you can be inspired by his words, too. Dr. King said that there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us, and that when we learn this, we'll be more loving and forgiving. He also said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a permanent attitude. In other words, it is something you have to work for. Just like you have to work to keep your body fit and your mind alert, you've got to work on your heart, too. Forgiving is not... Just a one-time decision. You've got to live forgiveness every day. If Stephen's story illustrates the ongoing battle that follows every decision to forgive, the next one, about an eight-year-old girl named Sierra Sher, shows how that battle cannot be won without a decisive first step. Sierra was three 
and she was hit by a car while walking across a street in Troy, New York, with her mother. Months of surgery, recuperation, and therapy followed, but she never fully recovered. Today, despite her confinement to a wheelchair and her inability to walk or use her arms and hands, she writes by holding a pen between her teeth. Sierra is a spunky nine-year-old who has dreams of becoming a lead vocalist in her own rock band and founding a home for disabled children. I'm trapped outside, but free on the inside, she wrote in a recent issue of her school newspaper. I probably do more than anyone else that can walk. Overall, being paralyzed isn't so bad. But if you talk to grandmother and primary caregiver, Alice Kananga, you'll get another angle of the picture. So I hope you guys stay tuned with that story about Sierra Sher. But I wanted to share with you the story of Dr. S- Detective Stephen McDonald. Thank you. Bye-bye.